Okay, so today's reading is from Exodus 32, and that will be 1 to 14, and this is one of the NIV versions. The golden calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed to him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early. They sacrificed the burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in the revelry. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, they've become corrupt. They, may, they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and they have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with an evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your own people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us open ears and open eyes to see and hear what it is you want us to learn from you this morning. Amen. If you've been here recently, you know that we're working through the book of Exodus. Um, on Sunday morning services, and that's got a lot of stories in it. Um, I love a good story, both for reading for myself and particularly reading to little children who respond beautifully when you do silly voices and get carried away with it all. Um, but unlike the laws, which we touched on last week, and the parts of the Bible like the epistles, which were written specifically to instruct people, it can sometimes be a bit tricky to work out how God wants us to relate to the stories of the people who lived in a very different circumstance to us several thousand years ago. But even though this situation happened so long ago in a very, very different place, we continue to read and study the Bible 
because we believe that it doesn't just tell us those people's story, it tells us God's story. We're not the people of Israel, whom God chose to be his particular image bearers, but as we follow Jesus, we see ourselves as inheritors of that covenant relationship with God that we've been reading about recently. The stories of his people in the past, we believe, if we're bothering to read the Bible, we believe they can give meaning and direction for us in the present. The actions and reactions of God can teach us, even if we like we saw in this story, the actions and attitudes of the people don't set us a very good example. So as it's a narrative or story, we can look at it in terms of characters, plot, and plot resolution. The people of Israel are key characters in this story, obviously, with all of their insecurities and human failings, but God is the main character. The basic premise of the plot in the part that Leanne's just read to us is, what happens when Moses suddenly disappears from sight for over a month? How will these people who've experienced God's miraculous rescue and provision respond when that key link person between them and God suddenly isn't there? And the answer in this passage is that they don't respond in faith and trust in the Lord. Having lived for so long in Egypt, where there were so many different gods for all the different occasions and circumstances, all of whom you could go and find in a temple down the road and see their physical idol or statue, the people are really struggling with the idea of a God who they can't see, and so far has done most of his direct interaction with them through Moses. And what goes wrong in this story and needs to be resolved is that they ask Aaron to create a God for them that they can see and touch. So what needs to be resolved by the end of this passage is God's huge anger at their clear turning away from him. He's brought about the circumstances through which they were able to leave those lives of slavery in Egypt. He's provided a miraculous path through the Red Sea. He's given them water, manna, and quail so they don't starve on the journey. And as we saw last week, he's given them a code to live by, which should make life fairer and safer for everyone, and which also sets them apart from the other tribes round about them, clearly identifying them as God's people. And this is how they respond to all that. Asking for a statue that they can point to and say, this is our God. Understandably, God is absolutely furious. He's had enough, he'll stick with Moses, but the rest of them have got to go. So for this part to be resolved, Moses has to intervene and negotiate with God on the people's behalf. We hear echoes of the way Abraham in Genesis negotiated with God on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses uses God's character and what he knows of him and the promises he's made and the the God that he has shown them he is to argue for the forgiveness of the people. He knows they don't deserve to be forgiven, but Exodus 34, verse 6, which comes just a couple of chapters later, tells us that God's identity is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Moses points out that God promised to make Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants into a great nation, and it will be to his glory if he keeps his side of the covenant despite the person's failings. To modern ears, it sounds a little bit like Moses is trying to be God's PR manager and point out that actually he really should do what he says he does because that will make everybody know how wonderful he is. 
Because of God's nature, his people are able to start again in their covenant relationship with him. As we said with our confession earlier on in the service, God is compassionate and loving and does forgive. So while Moses is up on the mountain having his amazing experience in God's presence, Aaron is the one on the ground with the people and they're getting very unsettled. He's the one who's got to answer all the questions about where Moses is, why he's not here, has he abandoned them, and all those kind of questions. Unsurprisingly, Aaron tends to get a rather bad press for this part of the story. In Moses' absence, the people look to him, but he clearly doesn't have that same charisma. He doesn't have quite the same relationship with God as Moses does. Moses has had to learn that job of being the mediator between God and the people over, I think, what we presume is several years. Aaron did have specific things to do to support this work, but he wasn't the one who seemed to hear directly from God in that very special way that Moses did. It wasn't Aaron's idea to create this idol or statue or visual symbol that they could point to and give offerings and sacrifices to and carry in front of them wherever they went. The people definitely decided what they wanted and they're the ones who said, this is your God. But Aaron gave them what they wanted. It can't have been easy being that one person against thousands of clamoring voices. But in the spirit of let him who is without sin cast the first stone, rather than looking at this and condemning Aaron, I did wonder if we could maybe learn from thinking about what he could have done instead and what are our alternatives to giving into that pressure and creating golden calves or doing whatever it is for us that gets in the way. So possibly he could have trusted in God's word. Way back earlier in the Exodus story, in chapters six and seven, Moses and Aaron had been told very clearly by God that he would bring about their freedom and take them safely to the promised land. Exodus six verse eight says, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And Exodus 7 verse 5 says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Not only had God said he would do this to both of them, but they had seen it happen. This was after God had done what he was said he was going to do. Their lived experience was that God did what he said he was going to do. The fact that his part in the plan, Aaron's part, was to be the mouthpiece for God's message to Pharaoh suggests to me that he was probably quite an articulate person. I wonder, could he have been able to change the people's minds about this desire for a physical idol if he had taken the chance to remind them of what God had said and done? As we've said several times in this sermon series so far, remembering what God has done in the past can help us to trust him for the present and the future. Might Aaron have taken the opportunity to remind himself and the people of God's miracles in the recent past? On the journey out of slavery so far, they had seen 10 plagues, culminating in God's protection of them specifically from the death of the firstborn. They had been part of a miraculous crossing of the Red Sea immediately followed by the literal washing away of the enemies who were pursuing them. 
They'd been guided through a wilderness by a pillar of cloud and fire when they had no idea where they should go. When they left behind all the normal sources of food and drink, God gave them water from a rock and sent manna and quail to wherever they were camped. The people were clearly quick to forget every miraculous invention, but as a leader, I wonder if Aaron could have taken a bit longer to remind them. And thirdly, he could have remembered God's promises. Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 in the build up to the giving of the Ten Commandments says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the covenant which was made with Noah, then with Abraham and his descendants, and is now being renewed as the people are freed from Egypt, is a binding promise. God has shown over the generations that he is and will be faithful in what he has promised. If they keep their, if they keep their side of the bargain, which includes obeying the commandments, which James reminded us last week was part of their distinctive identity in God, God promises they will be his treasured possession and a holy nation. But rather than being distinct, they'd actually rather be like everybody else and have a God that they can see and touch and carry around with them. So one way we could have looked at this passage would have been to focus on the idols in our lives, which is a perfectly valid thing to do. But for each of us, there will probably be different things which get in the way of having God in his rightful, central place in our lives. So rather than trying to discuss some of the things that might fall into that category, I hope that thinking about how Aaron could have handled things better and differently might help us when we're facing situations where we think we could be feeling pressure to take our eyes off God and focus on something else. So I suggested that Aaron might have focused on God's word. How well do we know God's word? And what opportunities do we give ourselves to get so familiar with the Bible that God can speak to us really clearly when things are getting difficult and we're feeling the pressure? Or Aaron could have tried reviewing God's miracles. What memories do we look back on which remind us of who God is and what he has done? Nick reminded us of this a few weeks ago. Where do we hear stories of how God has been faithful to other Christians in more recent times? You might get a magazine from an organization or look things up on websites or listen to podcasts from organizations or go to hear speakers where they share news of the faithfulness of God and miraculous answers to prayer in the here and now. You might be part of a small group where you feel close enough to people that you're able to talk to one another about how you've seen God working. Some stories might feel a whole lot more spectacular than others, but any way of focusing on God's faithfulness to his promises can keep us pointing in the right direction when things get difficult. And then we said that Aaron might have remembered God's promises and the way he did what he said he would do. We've looked today at one small part of the narrative of God's people, but the overarching narrative of God's story is his plan for redemption. We can be part of God's new covenant through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is the ultimate promise and its fulfillment. 
God's spirit does seem to have been in and with certain people for certain purposes in the Old Testament, but we live in the joy of the fact that we can have the Holy Spirit in our lives all the time. We can pray for ourselves and for one another for the empowering and enabling of that spirit when, like Aaron, we're feeling under pressure to conform and let something else take our focus away from God. Before James comes up to lead us in the next part, we thought it'd be good to pause now and have some time for reflection and prayer. So for just a couple of minutes, you might feel challenged that there is some kind of idol getting in the way of you putting God in the center of your life. Or you might feel inspired to react differently to Aaron and not give in to some kind of pressure that's being put on your faith. Whatever it is that God asks each one of us to do in response to this story now or over the next few days, let's continue to pray for one another that we will hear and listen to his voice. So we're just going to have a couple of moments for you to think and pray, and then I'll finish with prayer.